is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses, thir- verses 3 through 14. Hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his uh, grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. You know, predestination uh, is always a hot topic, right? Uh, The purpose in the sermon today is not to explain to you all the ins and outs of predestination. I'm going to assume that predestination is right because it's in the scriptures. But what I want to point out to you is something that is not merely just a cerebral exercise, but I want to engage your heart. I want to communicate to you the fact that such an abstract idea as predestination actually has real effects upon your heart and upon how you live your life. That you as a Christian and how you live as a Christian has direct influence, is, is directly influenced by such theology as predestination. You know, when you think about predestination, typically people get upset because they feel like it's unfair. And why would God choose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell? That's typical. What I want to show you in this passage is that the Bible actually doesn't see it that way. It doesn't see it as unfair. It actually sees it as loving. When you look in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love... He predestined us. And the reasoning is given. The reason why predestination is done out of love or in love is because of the purpose of predestination, the goal that God had in mind. When God predestined you in love, he predestined you for adoption, the verse says. That means there was a time when we were orphaned. When we were fatherless and godless and without hope in the world. Not because God the Father orphaned us, but because we orphaned ourselves. We ran away. And we loved the darkness more than the light. We loved the deception of Satan more than the truth of God. 
and we denied our father. And like the prodigal sons that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, we ran away and we decided that we wanted to be our own masters of our own lives and universes. And we became prodigal. We disowned God in our sinful nature. And that's why the word adoption is used. It's because despite the fact that God created us in love, and before he created us, in love he predestined us to be his sons and his daughters, he chooses to adopt the very children who disowned him to begin with. And in that you see such a tremendous love, such an enduring and powerful love, a fatherly love that you can't find elsewhere. Now, I want to show you that Paul says in that context, there is tremendous spiritual blessing. Now, in some circles, when you talk about spiritual blessing, you're talking about the health and the wealth that God gives you. And when you talk about spiritual blessings, they say, in order for you to be blessed by God, you need to obey, you need to live a moral life according to God's word, and only then will he give you what you want. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you wealthy. What's wrong with that, right? Everything. Everything is wrong with that. Because just to begin the conversation, it uses God. I've said this before. It uses God as a plunger to get the crap out of your life, right? You obey God because he's going to help you get the stuff that you don't want out of your life and get the stuff that you do want in your life, right? You want to get the, need in it, the neediness out of your life and you want the self-reliance and contentment that you can get. And you're using God as a tool to, to get the job done, right? That's just one thing. Now, Paul says there are true spiritual blessings. Not the kind that promises health and wealth by using God, but the kind that promises eternal life through God. And for Paul in Ephesians, he's saying these spiritual blessings, there are three of them that he names. And there are three because of good reason. Because these blessings apply to your past, they apply to your future, and they apply to your present. Now, typically you say past, present, and future, right? But when you look at Paul's argument, all you have to do is find the two words in him in this passage. It repeats itself three times. Well, it repeats itself two times, right? But it, it shows up three times, right? It says, in him, blah, blah, blah. In him, blah, 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 in him, right? These are the blessings, and in him refers to Christ, meaning the only way that you can get these blessings is not through not becoming your own Christ, not by becoming your own Savior for your own life, but by relying on Jesus who came down to be your Savior, right? It says in him, and in him there's a blessing that applies to your past. There's a blessing that will apply to your future, and, there will, and there's a blessing that applies to your present. And Paul orders it in that fashion because he just understands his readers. He knows what it's like to be human. 
All you have to do is read Romans 7, and you can know that Paul both strived for what which is holy without feeling uh, timidity about how people will judge him about, oh, you think you're so much holier. So he had that passion for holiness, but at the same time, he knew how, how sinful he was. And he didn't allow his, the, the reality of his sinful nature to detract his passion for holiness. Right? He had both understand. He had an understanding of both. That we are both called by God to be holy, and we are both saved by God because we are sinful. Right? Now, with that said, in Christ, what applies to your past? We have redemption. Now, what does redemption mean? Redemption means to buy back a slave or captive by paying someone. So you are setting a slave free by paying the owner of the slave. What it spiritually means is that Christ, God, Jesus Christ, is rescuing you from sin uh, ownership. Meaning, when Jesus Christ saved you, you were under the authority and possession of sin, so to speak. You were, un- you were, you were under the power and authority of sin. You couldn't do anything otherwise. Sin dominated your mental faculties and your affections. Sin dominated your mind and your heart. But redemption, if you only leave it there, is not enough. Because when you leave it, when you define redemption simply as rescuing from sin or deliverance from sin or freedom from sin, right? What you create is a culture of Christians who feel totally entitled to all the graces of God that he gives and totally free from any obligation to live for God. You get what I'm saying? You, you create an entitlement culture that expects God to be merciful and forgiving, but does not expect anything from oneself to be devoted and obedient to God. Redemption, when you define it simply as free, being freed from sin, is totally insufficient. And so there is the next part of redemption which is you are being freed from sin to Christ. So you once were under the authority and power of sin, and because Christ bought you with his own blood, he purchased you your entire life. You have been freed from the power and authority of sin. You are no longer a slave of sin, and you have become the property of God. And therefore, whatever God tells you, you as God's slave, right, you must do. Not to merit your standing with him, but because he has already bought your standing with him. He has already united you to himself. That's why we obey, right? That's the definition of redemption. Christ, he has... In him, we have redemption through his blood. You know, in Leviticus, there were laws that prohibited people from consuming blood. Sometimes blood tastes really good. Like, for example, medium rare steak. So good, right? Korean culture, all right? Sorry, but what is that thing, that blood sausage? Sundae, right, that's right. Right, some people, they just love it. 
I don't have a taste for it. Uh, it's a little weird. Um, other cultures have blood dishes, right? So if you were a Jew, you could not eat blood. You can't consume it. Why? Because blood was that which was used for atonement. It was considered sacred. Because blood was considered to be the life source for the human being. So if you, that belonged to God. That didn't belong to you. Meaning, because blood was associated with life, it was saying the reason why you couldn't eat as a Jew blood, the reason why you couldn't consume it is because it did not belong to you. Your life did not belong to you. It belonged to God. So you had to give it to God. Right? And when it says here, in him we have redemption through his blood. Right? The shedding of Christ's blood if you look in verse 7, it gives us the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, trespass is a little different from the word sin. Trespass refers to specific sins. Right? Sin, the general word for sin, has an idea of controlling power. This is very important. Right? I know I'm getting a little bit technical, but try to follow. When you say sin... You're talking about the controlling power of sin. So when Christ had freed you from sin, right? He freed you from all of its bondage. You are no longer its captive. When it says forgiveness of our trespasses, trespasses refers to the specific acts of sin. Yes, Christ has forgiven you from that. But you and I both know as believers, if you're a believer, even after you are saved, you still commit sin. You ever wonder why? It's because there's original sin that Christ's sacrifice had completely accomplished, had done away with, right? But then from that original sin flows all the actual sins, all the trespasses, the, the individual sins that you do. And they're all very different for each of us. And sometimes they're very similar. It's important to understand this difference because if you doubt your salvation because you commit sin, right? I'm not saying it's okay to commit sin. It's not okay. And when it's so not okay, God had to die for it, okay? That's how bad it was. Someone had to die. It wasn't a slap on the wrist. It wasn't a monetary fine. It wasn't five years in jail. It cost someone his life. That's how bad one lie is. That's how bad one emotion of jealousy or one emotion of anger or one emotion of uh, whatever is. That's how bad it is. That one thing sent Christ to the cross. It's not a light matter. But if it causes you as a Christian to doubt your salvation, that's a different issue. So understand and find comfort in the fact that just because you continue to commit sin, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Now be careful with that, because once you start, it's a very fine line, once you cross over to the point where you say, oh, it's okay, God forgives me, <laughs> then you got to go to Romans, and you got to remember what Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? And he says, certainly not. He says, no way, absolutely not. Very fine line, right? 
Now it says, according to the riches of his grace. You ever, who's ever heard of grace being defined as getting what you don't deserve? It's a very good definition to start with, but it's a very insufficient definition to have a full understanding of grace. Getting what you don't deserve, and then they define mercy as what? Who knows that? If grace is getting what you don't deserve, then what is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve, meaning God's judgment and wrath, right? The problem with defining grace in this way, getting what you don't deserve, there are two issues. Number one, it's centered on you. It's about you. It's about what happens to you. The definition itself assumes you at the center of grace, and it's really not. The second problem is it's focused on getting. But grace is not defined that way. That's an American Christian consumeristic definition of grace. When you look at grace, it's the very opposite. Grace doesn't center on us. It centers on God. And grace is not about, it's not about getting. It's about giving. A proper definition of grace is the God who gives something that he shouldn't. That's the proper definition of grace. God is giving you something that he should not give you, which is love, forgiveness, freedom, eternal life, all of that. And mercy, by contrast, right? Mercy, a proper definition of mercy, is God not giving you what he should give you, which is judgment and wrath and eternal hellfire. And when, you, when it says, according to the riches of his grace, it's not talking about something, it's not centering upon your experience of God. It's talking about something that has nothing to do with you that God, before the foundation of the world, decided on before you even existed, he decided on, in love, to sacrifice his own family and son to take our miserable place so that we, miserable and undeserving sinful creatures, can have life. And that's what it means when he says, according to the riches of his grace. It has nothing to do with what kind of person you are today, or what kind of life you've lived, or what, or what kind of life you plan to live. And it says, which he lavished on us. You know, lavish means to provide an excess. So God is excessive with his grace. That's, that's how he is. He doesn't give it one by one to see if, hey, it's, it's not like a treat. It's interesting. Um, we're trying to train Evelyn. Uh, we're trying to potty train Evelyn. And we gave her croutons. <laughs> she loves them. Um, we mistakenly called it a treat <laughs> a couple moments. And then we realized she's not a pet. So we, now we're calling it a snack, but um, we give it one by one to see, to see how she does, whether she 
poops and pees, well, now we give her a treat. God doesn't do that. You know, when he gives you grace, he opens the storage gates and he lets grace pour out upon you and let it overflow. That is God. That is the lavish God. He doesn't just pop one in your mouth. He just opens the gates and he lets all of his reserves just flow upon your life. And he does this in all wisdom and insight. Isn't that so contradicting if you think about it? God is a lavish God and yet he's wise and insightful. Are you kidding me? Well, how is that wise and insightful when he just opens the floodgates and gives you everything that he can? How is that wise? It's because God is not concerned about preserving himself. And it's so obvious when you look at the cross and you look at Christ, he gave up everything for you. And it was the most lavish act, and in some sense, the most foolish act, and yet it was the wisest and most insightful act that God has ever done. Because God found a way to completely annihilate sin and all of its effects and yet save the meager little creature that he would welcome as a son and a daughter into his royal family. He found a way to not completely destroy sin and sinner together, but he somehow found a way to save the sinner and yet completely destroy sin forever. He is wise and insightful and lavish and loving in his grace. And he makes known to us the mystery of his will. If you haven't noticed, I'm just going phrase by phrase. So if you have your Bible open, just follow with me. What is this mystery? What is it? It's, he says that he is making known to us the mystery of his will. What is this mystery? Is it some special spiritual power that we need to pray hard for? Is it some special spiritual mystical experience that we need to look for by going to certain special events? It really isn't. You know what this mystery of God's will is? All you have to do is go back to the scripture. Go to verse 10 and see what it is. That's how lavish he is. And that's how wise he is. The mystery of his will that he has made known to us is to unite all things to him. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. What does that mean? It means two things. Where Christ, to unite everything to God, right? Union with God, union with Christ. It's where Christ rules all of creation without the influence of sin. He rules all of creation, and there is no more any kind of influence of sin. Everything is perfectly united. There is no dissonance. There is no uh, division. Everything is perfectly in union with Christ, with no sin to interrupt that sweet, eternal fellowship. And secondly, it's where we, part of God's creation, become both subjectively and objectively united with Christ. What I mean by that is subjectively, right now, we are in constant conflict internally with God in our walk of faith. 
There are times we love God. There are times we hate God. There are times we wanna, we're hungry after God. There are times we could care less if God exists or not. We are subjectively in our human experience in constant conflict. Romans 7. Union with Christ means subjectively that our experience of being one with Christ will be perfected. There will no longer be any kind of internal conflict. There will never be a time when we lose interest of God. There will never be a time when we grow cold or distant or we don't care anymore. When union with Christ happens in eternal glory, our hearts and our minds will completely be satisfied. Our experience of God we will no longer struggle. And objectively, the reality is that we, we will be with God. This is not just in our heads. This is not just some uh, cultural, societal fabrication to somehow deal with the, uh, uh, the, the harshness of human existence. This is not that. This is not some machinated religion. It's objectively true there will be a time when Christ and us objectively, regardless of what we believe or don't believe, will be united. So subjectively and objectively, we will be one. This is the theological underlying truth to our church's vision. When we say that we are pursuing happiness in Christ together, that's what we're saying. We are shooting for union with Christ And the reason why happiness is so elusive, whether you're a Christian or not, is because of those trespasses. It's because of those corruptions, those, that sin corruption in the world. That constant conflict that happens. And that's why, as long as we live on this side of eternity, we are going to continue to pursue. Right? But when union with Christ happens, we will no longer pursue happiness in Christ, we will have it, and we will have it forever, and we will have it abundantly. This is also the theme for our 2018 retreat in July. It's 1.55, and I have to cut the sermon here. No, actually, let me give you the backstory. This was only the second point of my sermon. I have two more points. My second point had three points. Uh, the worship team, they told me to simplify it because I, I had two points I told them about. They said, cut the first point out. I'll just do the second. I said, okay, I'll cut the first one out. And then I was preparing the second point and I found three more points. <laughs> so uh, worship team, their, their patience and their love for me, thank you so much. Um, you're gonna have to be a little patient, a little longer and help me grow. Um, but let's pick it up next week. Um, but I want to leave you that in Christ, the first spiritual blessing is that we have redemption. Right? Redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today, and we pray, God, that you remind us that the greatest blessings that we can have in life are not defined in terms of healthiness and wealthiness. They are defined in terms of Christ, 
what he did on the cross and what you, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, had predestined and purposed and willed for us to have. We thank you, God, that when we orphaned ourselves from you, you didn't abandon us and say good riddance. But you lavishly sacrificed everything for people who deserve nothing but wrath. Thank you for your grace. Continue to feed us, strengthen us, inspire us with that same grace, God, until the day that Christ returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Arise with me as we sing our response song.